This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, well, OPEC's letting uh, a little bit more oil flow, um, and we've got oil rallying the most in 11 months after OPEC agreed to a production increase, though it might not be able to meet that production increase. Let's get more on this OPEC move, what it means for oil fundamentals. Stuart Glickman is head of energy research at CFRA Research on the phone in New Jersey. Also with us, back with us, Dr. Alan Wall, president of Transversal Consulting, historian and scholar of the energy industry and Western involvement in the Middle East. She's also got out a book. It's called Saudi Inc., The Arabian Kingdom's Pursuit of Profit and Power. She joins us uh, where they're based, Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, um, Stuart, let me start with you. Wow, big bump up. How are we supposed to read, though, this OPEC dis- dis- decision? How do you read it? Uh, good afternoon, Carol. So I-, I think that what people had been concerned about leading up to this meeting and which had caused uh, crude oil prices to decline a little bit was that um, OPEC might be overzealous in how much new production they were going to add to the markets. Uh, Russia had asked for 1.5 million barrels a day. President Trump had asked for at least a million. And I think what we're getting is, on paper, a million uh, barrel a day increase. But realistically and from a practical perspective, some of the parties here aren't going to be able to increase production. Uh, and so uh, it looks like the likely range is maybe 600 or 700,000 barrels a day. And that seems like a positive to the market since they had anticipated more coming along. Yeah, right. Less supply, certainly, I would guess, more supportive, as we're seeing, to the markets. Ellen, uh, come on in on this and how you see the latest OPEC move. And I also just, it's so funny, for anyone who's been covering the energy markets or business news for a long time, I just feel like OPEC doesn't have the sting that it used to. But but clarify that for me, if, if that's not the case. Well, it seems like OPEC managed its expectations pretty much to its advantage. Uh, apparently, the market had been expecting a larger increase in production. Right. And then when they came in with this, you know, what is essentially, I agree, about a 600,000 uh, barrel per day increase, uh, markets were pretty excited. One thing, though, to remember is that they've still got this joint meeting tomorrow with Russia and Kazakhstan and all these other producers, some of whom may be putting pushing for uh, an increase. So we may actually see more barrels out of this than just those 600,000. Longer term, Ellen, how do you see the market? I think that the the market is, is still tightening. I mean, we've got Saudi Arabia is pretty clear that you know, they've, they stated, we've got, you know, 2 million barrels a day that we can bring on the market, this additional supply that they're, they've said they're ready to bring on the market. Uh, it's really just an issue of how much they think they can put on. They don't want to over, over dump, essentially. I mean, Khaled al-Fali was very clear during uh, this meeting that he really doesn't want to flood the market. It's going to be gradual. And I do think that some of it is going to depend on what happens with Iran, how much oil comes off the market because of those sanctions, and we will see them uh, reevaluating in September and then again in the beginning of December. Stuart, where's the U.S. oil market right now? What kind of supply are we pumping out? And how does that play into the kind of pricing we're seeing on a global level? Well, certainly the U.S. is front and center, a big part of the reason why um, 
oil prices got derailed in 2014, Mm -hmm. and it took a significant length of time before the 1.8 million barrels a day cut that Russia and OPEC um, and Mexico collectively were able to bring markets back into balance. Um, Going forward, I don't think the U.S., uh, certainly U.S. production is going to grow, but we're starting to hear more and more about um, congestion in the Permian Basin, which is really the biggest single driver of U.S. uh, production increases. So I don't think that the U.S. is going to be in a position to increase its production in quite the same, um, with quite the same flourish that it has in the last couple of years. It's going to be maybe a little bit more gradual than what we've seen in the past. Um, Ellen, you know, in terms of geopolitical concerns impacting the energy energy markets, do you see it relatively quiet uh, at this point? I think that the biggest concerns right now are Iran and seeing which uh, oil uh, customers, you know, which refiners and which uh, companies decide to drop purchases of Iranian oil and where they're going to replace those. But I think that the trade issues between China and the United States are probably bigger on the horizon here and uh, in terms of how they're going to impact uh, the oil markets and potentially uh, U.S. exports uh, of, of oil and oil products to to Asia as well. Um, Potentially holding them back, correct? Exactly. Well, China has threatened to put tariffs on U.S. uh, oil exports, but there's also this calculus because China is um, Iran's biggest customer. Mm -hmm. And so it's possible that uh, the United States could uh, kind of dangle essentially like a waiver for uh, Iranian oil to China could use it as basically a negotiating uh, tactic to get China to uh, assent on to relent on some of these uh, tariff issues. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see oil coming into play in these negotiations fairly soon. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, we have a story in the Bloomberg from uh, earlier this month just talking about how oil purchases from the U.S. had doubled, um, uh, you know, most recently. Um, Stuart, how do you see China? What's the important part of that for you? Thirty seconds left here. Yeah, I, I agree with Ellen. I think that uh, China could look for alternatives uh, to Iranian crude. One place that they won't be able to look is Venezuela, because mm-hmm. Venezuela is, is mired in tremendous difficulties. Yeah. So I think that um, U.S. potentially able to dangle some kind of waiver might have more resonance this time around because China has fewer, few other places to go. That's right, because it has to import so much. Um, everything, right? I think in terms of their oil. Stuart Glickman, thank you so much. Head of Energy Research at CFRA Research on the phone in New Jersey. Dr. Ellen Wald, she is president at Transversal Consulting and uh, really follows the energy industry and Middle East very closely, the connection. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. I said, hey, Black Yes, indeed, everybody. Uh, hey, BlackBerry, what's going on? Investors selling shares of the company big time, sending the stock down as much as 10% following the company's latest uh, update. Uh, Garrett Devink, did I really say that? Garrett Devink. I get everything all the time. It's all good. <laughs> I threw in a couple of extra syllables for, for free. Garrett joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. He's our technology reporter, Bloomberg News, good sense of humor. Devink, I know that. Uh, what's going on with BlackBerry? Yeah, I mean, they're down a lot today. I mean, really, the story with BlackBerry, I don't know if people have been checking in on them very often these days, but they, of course, do not make phones anymore. They got out of that business almost two years ago now. This is a pure software business at this point. They make a range of different software. Essentially, when they're going through the turnaround, the CEO went out and bought a bunch of little companies, tried to cobble it all together. Who buys their software? Um, I would say, you know, they. so the 
it depends which software you're talking about. The main one is sort of the software to manage corporate phones. So if you're Goldman Sachs, for example, I don't know if they're actually a client, but they're a good yeah. example. They obviously have, you know, hundreds of different phones, not necessarily Blackberries, but Androids, iPhones that they give to their employees. And they want to make sure that if one of those gets stolen, right. that security can shut it down. They, they can make sure that that phone, which may have confidential information, doesn't get in the right hand. So BlackBerry provides a dashboard to set that all up. There are still BlackBerry models out there. There are, yes. I mean, some people are holding on to them, but this is not just for BlackBerry phones. This software works for all phones. Oh, interesting. Okay, so that's the majority of their business. That is sort of the most important of their software business. And what happened here is, you know, for the last few years, John Chen, the CEO, has been saying, you know, software revenue is growing. It's really important. It's going to keep growing. That's what you should be thinking about. Of course, that's all the real, all the market kind of looks at at this point because they're like, if you're a software company, we need to see that software revenue growth. And today, there was a major miss in expectations, and that's why the, the shares are down so uh, much. All right. So what are you hearing in terms of analysis? What I mean, what did they muck up? What did they get wrong? I mean, so they – I spoke muck to – Muck up is my new word. Yeah, great word. It's a technical I sp- word. I spoke to John Chen this morning, actually, and he says, you know, the, the gap between expectation and reality was – completely because of accounting changes, which, you know... How does that happen? Well, essentially, what they used to do a contract like this, say, for example, with Goldman Sachs, they would do it all up front, get the money, and record that in their quarter. But now, because of some accounting changes, and also because they've changed how they sell their software to a subscription model, they can't um, show all the revenue at once. They have to sort of show it over the length of the deal. So it's recurring. It's exactly. The revenue is more recurring now than it used to be. He said it's going to be around 90% of the revenue will be recurring by the end of this year. So, so why is the street surprised about this? Though, mean, right? Because they, they, they probably talked about that this is their strategy. Yeah, it, it's definitely some. I mean, they did and didn't. I mean, it was some poor communication from the CEO. But, you know, even after he's, you know, he's spoken to us, he's spoken to the market, obviously, through the earnings call, the street is still obviously um, skeptical. So I think there's there's a little bit more going on than just accounting here. I mean, when you dig into the numbers or when you talk to analysts who follow the company, um, I mean, what do what do they say? What do they see? This company is one that people aren't actually I mean, people really... wrote it off yeah. right, a few years ago, and it's kind of amazing. It's still, what, a $5 so it, billion it, dollar sort of, market cap. I it, mean, it's still yeah. around. It kind of puttered along. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people just kind of stopped paying attention, and the few people who do are focused on, on you know, and we are as well on mm-hmm. the numbers that the CEO tells us to focus on. And when, you know, he kind of makes a mistake like that, then, of course, the market is, is going to punish them. So, you know, most people are not super interested in this company more. It's sort of a mid-range kind of security-focused software company. It's puttering along. It hasn't really moved much around far farther than beyond $10.50 or below $9.50. It's kind of like, below, buy, you know, sell below 10 buy uh, sorry, buy below ten, sell above ten. The stock's right. not really going anywhere. So I think most, you know, investors honestly are wondering to see if there will maybe be a sale and or maybe uh, this company might be taken private by private equity. There's no indication that that will happen, but it's definitely right. something that people are constantly talking about. Could it also also possibly, um, Gary, you know, link up with someone else and kind of expand the business? I mean, they is there ha- something there? Yeah, the, like, they, I know they talk about IoT, right? The Internet of Things is I yeah. The the whole IoT <laughs> thing is still sort of in the realm of like, well, we'll see where that goes. What 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 that means when they talk about it is they have a lot of patents when it comes to wireless. So about you know making sure that one machine can talk to another machine over a wireless network in a very secure way. Mm-hmm. They definitely have the patents to do that. And so their theory that they keep presenting to the market, we're yet to see real revenue coming out of it, is that in the future when more and more things talk about talk to each other, black. BlackBerry will sort of be that secure middle layer to keep it all safe. So 
based on what happened today and they got it out there, one would assume that when we get to the next quarter and we get to the next set of earnings that it should be kind of clean? Exactly. And so the important thing now to watch is to say, okay, well, maybe we'll let you get away with that one for, you know, these accounting reasons that you're talking about. But if you have another surprise next quarter, then that's you know, a serious problem for this company's turnaround, which up to this point was looking to be pretty stable. You know, yeah. it was never going to become what it was in 2008, an $80 billion company the day that the iPhone was announced. Up but... 62% <laughs> last year, right? What exactly. a bounce back from exactly. being kind of beaten up for the and, two previous years. And three quarters in a row of beating revenue expectations, and then you have this number, and, and that sort of is disappointing for a lot of people. Um, investors certainly losing some faith in the company. Does John Chen still have the faith of some of his biggest backers? I would say so. I mean, John, investors? you know, the most important investor or the most important investors um, are, you know, put him in place when the company was kind of on the rocks, got rid of Torsten Hines, put John Chen in place, Prem Watsa, obviously, Fairfax up in Toronto. They are sort of the staunchest uh, supporters yeah. of this company that have been for years. They got in at a higher price than the stock is at, so they're definitely in this for the long run. They keep saying that. John Chen obviously still has five years on his contract. Um, he stands to make a lot of money if he can hit the targets. Right. And so I don't think you can expect him to leave anytime soon. All right. Well, great to check in with you. Lots of stuff there. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Garrett DeVink, he is technology reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Shares of BlackBerry down 8.4%. This is Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. Volvo opening its first manufacturing plant in the United States this week near Charleston, South Carolina. They've got plans to sell here in the U.S. and also export to the rest of the world. It's all part of a big turnaround for the Swedish automaker, now owned by the Chinese automaker, Geely. We caught up with Volvo Chief Executive Officer Hakan Samuelsson from the factory floor on the day of the opening. So, Hakan, this is the first American plant, manufacturing plant for Volvo. Tell me what it means for the company. It means really that uh, now for the first time we are a truly global company. Earlier we were exporting cars out of Europe. Now we will build them in Europe, we will build them in America, and we build also in China. So this really completes uh, a creation of of a global production structure. But it also, of course, means that finally we're local in the U.S. After many, many years' discussion, now we are local. And uh, I think that is absolutely essential for our ability to grow in this market. You have to come closer to customer to know what they prefer in the future. And uh, now we are very proud that we are here in a location we think was absolutely the right decision to You know, it's interesting. You guys are truly, I feel like, an international company. If you think about the heritage of Volvo, um, a Swedish brand, you're now owned by a Chinese company, Uh, you're now manufacturing here in the United States. Tell me, though, about this growing wave of protectionism. Obviously, uh, the trade talks that are going back and forth, and it looks like the imposition of tariffs, certainly between the United States and China and others. What does that mean for you folks? Because you're planning to export a lot from this facility here in South Carolina. Now, that's, of course, very worrying, and I think the whole industry. And uh, But, of course, first you should say, now when we have the factory here in the U.S., I mean, that's really a good step forward, and uh, so it will always be good. So if we wouldn't have had that, I would be even more nervous. But we believe really in free trade, and that is because that gives really our consumers better products and lower-cost products. So, But we also believe in uh, it should be a uh, fair trade in both ways. 
so that is really what we are very proud here also to demonstrate. This factory will, when it's fully used here in a three years' time, it will export as many cars as we will import into the U.S. So, I mean, Volvo would be uh, have a balanced trade uh, in about three years if we can utilize this factory and uh, if nothing happens, of course, with, with new tariffs. And that would be a drawback if that happened. And uh, then we would, of course, also jeopardize half of the jobs we plan to create here, 4,000. Half of them would be assembling cars for export. I am curious, too, with uh, China now planning retaliatory tariffs uh, against U.S.-made autos, will you folks keep making the S60, which you'll be producing out of this facility in South Carolina, will you, though, continue making it in China for some time? Yeah, it's an older model. We, of course, want to have this new, uh, very dynamic S60 now going to be built in South Carolina. And, of course, we want to export that also to U.S. and to Europe. So if there would be higher tariffs, of course, all of those plans would uh, be in jeopardy. In terms of production capabilities, give me an idea of how much will be coming out of this South Carolina uh, facility. I know the S60, you guys are unveiling it um, this week, today. Uh, how much do you plan to produce and how much do you plan to grow that production? Uh, first uh, step is about... Uh one shift operation around 50, 60,000 cars, that's where we start, and half of that will be exported. But within three years' time, we will introduce and the new generation XC90, and then we will use this factory up to the capacity. It's built for 150,000 a year, and half of that would then be exported. And that number, 75,000, is more or less the same number that we would import out of Europe and China than into the U.S., we would have a balanced trade uh, at that uh, stage. Hakan, what is it about manufacturing in the United States? Why do it in South Carolina? You could do it anywhere. You're going to be exporting uh, big time from this facility. Why pick the U.S.? Was it about tax breaks? What was it in particular? A, a cheaper labor force? I'm trying to understand. No, of, of course, all of the cost items have to be um, competitive. And, yeah. and, and we really checked a lot of states. We checked Mexico. No big difference if you put everything together. So decisive was at the end, really. I think we need a commitment to our retailer and to our consumer showing that we are here really for the long run and we want to be locals. And, uh, of course, we also got a very good support from uh, from the government of South Carolina, and I think that was maybe the, the issue that made us uh, take the decision to go here to Richville, South Carolina, which uh, I am now more convinced than ever it was the right decision to take. You know, it's fascinating. We did a cover story, uh, Bloomberg Business Week, all about Volvo and the highs and lows, certainly coming off the crisis, the Ford ownership, and then, of course, being owned by Geely. And, you know, people really see it, certainly those who've watched the auto industry, is quite a remarkable comeback. I know you guys have been pretty aggressive when it comes to driverless cars, when it comes to electric cars. Give me an idea, two to three years, where you see the company. We will continue growing, first of all. So we will be a major player in the premium car business. And we are really going to uh, really now focus on the challenges for our business. I think we need to do something about our carbon footprints. I mean, we have decided to be faster in electrification than, than the others. 
think also as a safety brand we need also to be leaders in autonomous drive because that's really the next step in in safety so we are putting a lot of effort into those technology areas and I think that will make uh, Volvo stronger for the future and, and also more attractive for the consumers of the future so we, we continue growing more or less as we have done in the last years that's our plan. Hakan, what partnerships do you want in order to get to those goals whether it's on electric vehicles whether it's on self-driving uh, you've also moved into a subscription service and offering different services what other partnerships I know you have kind of played down any kind of partnership with Daimler certainly they are a competitor are there other partnerships that you're seeking out we, we are very open for partnership. We really think we cannot do everything ourselves. But we are not focusing on, the, let's call it, conventional partnership with other car OEMs. We are looking into partnership into the tech industry. I mean, we are teaming up with uh, Google for an all-new operational system into the car, which will bring more infotainment uh, applications into the car. That's one example. We need to team up with the LiDAR partners. We need to team up team up with the NVIDIA we are going to use for our autonomous cars and uh, Uber of course we are teaming up with right. Uber we are delivering base cars for the ride hailing so a lot of new tech partners uh, instead of maybe more conventional uh, car suppliers. So that's Hakan Samuelson, Chief Executive Officer at Volvo, uh, joining me earlier this week uh, on the day that they opened their new U.S. manufacturing facility uh, just outside South uh, Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina. Their first, in fact, in the U.S. Keep in mind that since he's become CEO, uh, that happened in 2012, Volvo has built an engine plant and two vehicle assembly factories in China, plus that factory in South Carolina, which opened this week. They've also expanded R&D centers in Sweden and in California. And by the end of this year, the company will have introduced nine models, essentially replacing its entire product lineup. For 2017, the company uh, reported a profit of $1.76 billion. That's both uh, a record, that's a record, along with reporting sales of 571,577 vehicles. So that operating profit and the number of sales, how many vehicles they uh, produce, those are records for that 91-year-old company. They had revenue of $26.3 billion in 2017. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets, and this is Bloomberg Radio. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team in. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Our next guest says we are entering the next era of the digital revolution, the regulatory era, and why startups should pay very close attention. He's, in fact, written a book about it. Evan Burfield is co-founder of the venture capital firm and incubator 1776. His book, Regulatory Hacking, a Playbook for Startups, based in Washington, D.C., in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carol. Tell us about this book. Tell us about yeah, so what the, the premise is. The, the basic premise is that you know we've come through an era in technology, the, the last 20 years, that have been really can focused on consumer. And the kind of Silicon Valley playbook has been either ignore government or, or, or if you have to, view government kind of defensively down the road. Because they could, because government was kind of like, yeah, there's something going on yeah, over maybe, there. Maybe you're e-commerce and you have <laughs> some state sell, tax yeah. issues. Maybe, or, you know, some, <laughs> right. maybe you're in media. But, but broadly, right, if you're, if you're launching a dating app or you're launching Instagram, you can more or less ignore government. But if you look at almost all the big problems that people are starting to tackle and the really big technologies, right, robotics, self-driving cars, blockchain, AI. Bitcoin, AI, all this stuff, you're entering an, uh, we're entering an era where you are going to be tackling unbelievably complex regulated sectors. 
right? So, you know, we profile in the book startups that are doing human brain interface. Yeah. We profile startups that are doing AI to manufacture entirely new types of food, right? This is not stuff where you can just say, I'm just going to ignore government. It's no, It's so funny that you say that in uh – Bloomberg Business Week this week, we have a couple of stories um, that kind of play into this sooner-than-you-think idea that we kind of cover here at Bloomberg, and it talks about AI, artificial intelligence, specifically in the healthcare sector. And it's not, here's what's to come, here's what's already happening. And it talks about AI um, helping to differentiate between kind of all the bells and whistles, alarms that go off in a hospital to get to alarm fatigue and so on. But what's interesting is somebody talked about this AI software uh, and kind of neural network thinking that they've created and that they say they don't even you create these things and you you understand it but you don't totally understand how it works until like something doesn't quite work and you're like okay but that to me is fascinating so how do we get a regulatory environment that (laughs) if the smart people don't totally understand how it's all working how do you get a regulatory environment that's gonna that's going to regulate it in the right way well and and, and we i talk a lot a lot in the book and kind of this this idea that on the one hand you have entrepreneurs who, who have been taught a model for building startups that, that just says, don't engage, don't understand, ignore, which, which isn't going to work. But you also have policymakers on the other side of things who don't understand this stuff. Right. They don't necessarily have these networks. I, I think you're starting to see more bridges get built, and you're starting to see more startups that are achieving big success in these areas. And you've also seen some, some stories that you know kind of present warning signs for other entrepreneurs. So you have sort of uh, the 23andMe factor, right? Like you can't just mm-hmm. sort of apply the Uber playbook when you're dealing with FDA and medical advice. Right. Right. You can't just kind of pay some fines for drivers if you're getting cease and desist letters from the FDA. <laughs> Should we assume, though, Evan, that regulators are going to be lagging? Or yeah, how, they're, how they're, do they catch well, up Well, one of the things we talk about in the book is that there's this assumption on the part, I think, of a lot of founders that regulators are – like I don't actually think they understand that regulators are actual humans they can go talk to. <laughs> and that – that's Maybe going and having a conversation. Educating them. Worst case scenario, the regulators, you know, say, I don't get it. I don't want to get it. I don't understand it. But we, we use some great examples in the book of startups that have achieved real breakthroughs from actively going and having a conversation with regulators. Like? Saying, uh, so Hop, Skip, Drive, a yeah. great example, which is doing um, kind of ride sharing for kids. So you're a parent and yeah. you want a super trusted, super safe driver to pick your kid up from school and drop them off at soccer practice because you're working. Um, you know, that's a great example. Like they very proactively went to the California Public Utilities Commission and said, hey, listen, we think this is great for parents. It's great for the economy. It's great for kids. It's great for potential drivers. Right. Right now, no one under 18 is allowed to be in a livery service. How do we change that? And they actually worked with and constructed a new regular regulatory regime for this kind of work. Could they have done it, though? If Uber had not already been the trailblazer and kind of did ignore a lot of regulations, right, and just kind well, of stampeded into different cities. Maybe, maybe not. And, you know, one of the things that I, I talk a lot about is that Uber wasn't necessarily wrong in the approach they took because they were genuinely facing little local iron triangles between policymakers, uh, taxi cab commissions, and taxi operators. Right. right. They were never going to be able to execute an ask permission strategy and have it work. Right. They would have stopped before they even started. Yeah. They may have taken that too far. Yeah. I think what's unhealthy is that people, a lot of other entrepreneurs have taken the Uber playbook and said, that's the way you engage with government in all scenarios, in all industries, in all business model types versus going, Uber was facing an exceptionally unique set of circumstances. They deployed an 
unbelievably effective strategy that they probably took too far and they're dealing with a bit of a hangover on now. Right. But, you know, you, you shift just a little bit. You go from Uber for adults to Uber for kids and probably the let's go in guns a blazing wasn't going to work as well because people just feel differently about kids and right. regulators feel differently about kids. Right. And right. We're already seeing, though, in terms of regulations, I think a GDPR over in Europe, right? Um, come back because I'd love to talk more about it. Great. Thank about you so all much. This. Good luck with the book. Regulatory Hacking, a playbook for startups. The author is Evan Burfield. He's co-founder of 1776, a venture capital firm and incubator. Joining us in our New York studio, our Bloomberg 1130 studio. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close with a guest who says there are many reasons to stay in this market, but also says don't throw all caution to the wind. David Dietz is founder, president, and chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management, $340 million in assets under management. David joining us once again on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. David, how are you? Very good. Very good on this first Friday of the summer. I know. How nice, right? We made it. Um, I don't know. You look at the environment. We're all kind of eagerly awaiting earnings season so that we get to check in with the CEOs to see what they're seeing and whether or not some of these trade escalations are impacting business decisions, business spending. Um, How do you see it? Well, you know, one of the most important things that drives stock prices are earnings. That's ultimately what you buy a stock for as opposed to a bond. And here, I think we're going to get some good news from Q2. Earnings are poised to uh, be up year over year about 19%. You can't argue with that, even though it's just a little bit down from Q1. And if profits are the mother's milk of stock prices, this is the overriding bullish factor, Carol. Having said that, though, earnings are backwards looking, right? Well, you know, you're absolutely right, and you don't want to drive looking in the rearview mirror, and there's no question about it. The better the earnings are this quarter, the comparisons a year from now will be that much more difficult. And quite frankly, stocks do look forward six to nine months. So that's something for investors to keep in mind and why your favorite stock might actually go down, even though you've got a good earnings report. But there are other bullish factors, Carol. What what specifically? You know, I would say that the overall low interest rate environment is probably your next most important factor. We have a 10-year treasury, which is still below 3%. We were just talking I, about this earlier, that, you know, there it is, right? We all made a big deal out when, you know, when it pierced above 3%, but there it is staying, you know, at 29 or just a little bit uh, below it. What retiree, what endowment or institution can make their long-term plans expecting under 3% per year? Just not possible. So as a result, it seems that every little dip, every little pullback is going to be met with buying interest because it just doesn't work to do otherwise in this low interest rate environment. Um, What else do you find is favorable? Well, you know, we've got a great economy here. I mean, we could see a 4% 
GDP in Q2, and that's supported, of course, by very low uh, unemployment statistics. We've got some nice retail sales numbers. That's probably due to the tax cuts fattening uh, consumers' paychecks. Of course, those tax cuts uh, primarily were focused on corporations. The uh, statutory um, tax rate went down from 35% to 21%. That, again, allows a lot more money to come from the bottom line. That's got to be providing a tailwind here. You do say, though, some caution is still in order. Um, And I'm assuming some of this has to do with Fed policy. Some of this has to do with whether the heightened uh, trade talks turn into heightened trade actions. Both are important, but I still think investors' number one concern is this interest rate situation. Because here's the thing. We've got a two-year Treasury, which is only now about 36 basis points less than the 10-year. If the two-year goes higher than the 10-year, historically, that's been associated with recessions, which has been a negative for the stock market. So if the Federal Reserve follows through on its promise now to hike twice more by the end of the year, two-quarter-point hikes, that takes you 50 basis points up. You've got an inversion if that 10-year Treasury doesn't start to move, and that is a yellow, if not red flag. David, one of the stories that we were certainly talking about this week, I mean, there was a lot going on, but we, you know, in terms of the market specifically, we talked a lot about General Electric getting kicked out of the Dow, the last 19th century member being removed, Walgreens Boots is in to replace it. It's, you know, I think if you go back 10 years, a few years, like, I don't think we would have ever thought thought, certainly 20 years, that the G- that GE would be kicked out, right? We thought that they were being smart, spreading their businesses, playing into different industries, so on and so forth. But here they are kicked out. You say that that's potentially a buying opportunity. Yeah, I think so, uh, for a couple reasons. One is just look at historically what has happened when Dow components have been kicked out. Certainly over the last five years, the returns have way outpaced the market and indeed done even better than those uh, uh, admitted into the Dow. Your poster child for that is Alcoa. Who would have thunk that Alcoa would rise about 90% after it got kicked out? So that's a positive factor. But I think one more overriding situation here is why did GE get kicked out? No question about it. It's the poster boy for uh, all sorts of bad news and and, and uh, um, uh, unfortunate investments and so forth. But the fact of the matter is it still has $120 billion of sales, almost twice the newcomer replacing it, Walgreens Boots Alliance. So you can't say that uh, General Electric was booted out for irrelevance. Why was it booted out? Because it had a very low stock price, just about $12 a share, which meant it was irrelevant to the movement of the Dow. That is underscored when you look at what was not brought into the Dow. Where's Amazon? Where's Google? The fact of the matter is, in that antiquated uh, price-weighted average in the Dow, it can't tolerate a very high price. I think for technical factors, the GE was out. Right. And you got to look at GE, still, what, $121 billion in revenues expected this year. David Dietz at Point View Wealth Management on the phone. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.